following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. If anyone was not here last week, I, I pulled a really cool trick where I pulled this whole top off during prayer, actually. So this is very good. This is stable today, and we're not, uh, we're not losing it. Thank you so much for making it out. Um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, man, we need you here as a family. That was, I don't know if anyone else kind of feels this way. I'm overwhelmed sometimes when I listen, when I stop and we're singing and I'm being preached to by one another. It is a wonderful fellowship and a wonderful blessing to be preached, preached the word by one another while we sing. Enjoy that. It is wonderful. Saints around the world don't have the freedom in many different places that we have to do that. This is wonderful. It's a foretaste of what's to come. I talk about with other guys who play music with me, I'm like, can you imagine how good Jesus must be at playing music and the stuff that he's going to come up with when we're there? It's going to be awesome. Like, and this is just like a little piece of that, and we get to enjoy that. And our hearts are convicted because both by music is, 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 is helpful for our emotions to help us kind of in sync and focus. And then we hear these words that say stuff like, at the end here, until every heart confesses that Christ is Lord. Reveal your glory through the preaching of the word, through the foolishness of the preaching of the word. Reveal your glory, Lord. So, uh, first I want to say thank you for coming out to be part of this, our family together. Secondly, I want to thank you because the more people that we cram into this space, the warmer it is. So this is very helpful also for our electric bill. So thank you for being here. There are many good reasons, and uh, we want to, it's, a, it's a really a win-win for everyone. So thanks for being here this morning for that. It has been uh, very cold on and off this week. Um, so much so that this morning's batch of coldness caused us, am I a little bit hot here? Oh, too much. Let me take this off. Sorry, everyone. Um, so what's this, this morning's batch of coldness actually made uh, us break out in a little bit of song, a musical talent in my home. Um, let me explain. Um, usually when I preach, I'll get out in the morning, I'll get up a little bit early, I'll get ready, and then I'll, I'll come and uh, I'll come here early so I can kind of be in the quiet, kind of prepare my heart before the busyness of Sunday morning. You all know how busy it is, how that Hall is like Grand Central Station getting through here somehow. So I like to come and do that early. And this morning was just like that. So I, oh, I have to be close now. This is so unfreeing. So maybe I could do the, uh, um, no, that would be disastrous. Um, so this morning was no different. I got up, slid out of bed early, got my shower, got my clothes on, got my stuff ready to go. And I go over to give Kristen a kiss goodbye. And, uh, She's kind of like whining about the cold and about me having to leave early. And she's like, no, don't go, you know. And I'm like, I simply must go. <laughs> and she says to me, you know, melodious voice, but baby, it's cold outside. <laughs> and then I say, I have to say no. <laughs> but then I said, what am I saying? And then with a little grin, I was like, well, do you want me to get back in bed? I could, you know, and she's like, no, 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 no. Don't you dare open the covers. When you do that for the shower, the last 20 minutes, I've been trying to get the heat back up in here. <laughs> so it's a little cold, and I understand. Um, that story may or may not have actually been true. Um, I might have taken a shower. Um, 
pass judgment, if you will. Um, that's kind of what we're going to talk about this morning a little bit, passing judgment, and I'll get there in a little bit. Uh, but yes, that story really had nothing to do with what we're talking about this morning, except we can all enjoy this cold weather. So uh, we are in the fellowship of sufferings in that way. Let us read this morning. We're going to read Mark chapter 8 and follow along with me here. Last week we were in 22 through 26. We talked about the opening of the blind man's eyes. This week we're moving on. Remember what we talked about last week. And as we move forward, this next section, verse 27, all the way through chapter 9, verse 1, is going to be a teaching section for Jesus. We're going to spend majority of our time. Today we're just going to spend it on these first couple verses. But the next two weeks after this, we'll finish this section out to 9-1. But it's important for us to read it together. So if you can follow on your Bibles or you can just watch up here. But I'll read it. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father, with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let's pray. Father, this morning we want to see your glory. We want to see through your word who you are. Lord, we want to move out of the way and under the teaching of you, submit to your lordship, and be changed by the preaching of your word. May you help us to have receptive hearts of belief. May you grant us faith and repentance. May we look at your word, realize that it's telling the truth about who you are, and respond. Thank you for opening the eyes of your disciples. Thank you for slowly, lovingly, as a shepherd, bringing us along. Because you want to make us like yourself. And through it, we know you will get glory. So we ask, Lord, this morning, in the truest sense, that you would glorify yourself. Thank you for your love. May you be glorified today. In Jesus' name, amen. So this, these, this next section here is really going to be divided up into three parts. The first is chapter 8, 27 through 30, which is what we'll talk about today. Then next week we'll talk about 831 through 33. Then the following we'll do 34 through the beginning of verse 1 in chapter 9. 
So today we're zoning in really on a very famous passage, the Confession of Peter. Um, it's probably, everyone's at least heard about this and knows at least somewhat familiar with what's going on. But as we've walked through Mark, it's very important, again, that we bring us along, remember what's happened last time that we talked about this, and the, exactly what happened is Mark leads us through the seeing of the blind man to this pericope, or this, this story, this part, where he's going to start his teaching afresh. What is he going to say to them? If you're taking notes, um, and you don't have to, but if you are taking notes, we're going to kind of divide today up into three sections. The first one will be that, that we're going to look at the setting. The second one is that we'll look at the questions, Jesus' questions and the disciples' answers. And then third, we'll look at the uh, Jesus' response to the disciples' answers. Now, if any of you have grown up around preaching and you want to hear like some good alliteration, here it is. We're going to talk about the, the, rec the direction. Man, I can't even get the D right. We're going to talk about the direction. Then we're going to talk about the discussion. Then we're going to talk about the devastating response. All right, so these are the, this is where we're going today, kind of so we can follow along so that you know where I'm going, so you know when I'm starting to wrap up, you can start to button up your coats and get ready for the Arctic blast, all right? So it gives you a little bit of a frame here. Let's start in verse 27 with the setting or the direction. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, at first, um, let's just talk about it a little. This place is a place for emperor worship. It's given the name so that people will understand. That is named after uh, Herod. Also, it's giving him idea of this, this idea of Caesar, Caesarea, if you will. And it's all about this place where people will come together and worship the emperor. At first, I didn't understand why this would be so significant, because it doesn't really matter. They're in the villages of Caesarea Philippi surrounding this area. They're not necessarily in the main city. What significance is there? A couple scholars talk about that it's that this place that you know, where the center of one of the centers of Caesar worship is happening, that Peter makes the confession that Jesus is the Christ. Maybe that's, that's a little helpful for me to think about that, but as I, as I started to think about it, one of the things that really may be significant is that we already know from, even back from Abraham, that through Abraham and his descendants and through David as we go down, what's going to happen? All the nations will be blessed. This may be a part of what we're seeing right here. Jesus' messiahship, his Christness, that he is the anointed one, is being declared in a center of non-Jews, of non in a place where the name of Caesar is held as the one to be worshipped. So that gives you a little bit of idea where this is happening. Now, it's important also, remember last week we were in Bethsaida, right? That's where the, the blind man is, is asked to come out and Jesus heals him. But from Bethsaida, we talked about, I talked about that we're turning now. And where are we headed? Jerusalem, that's right. What's going to happen in Jerusalem? The crucifixion, right. This is where we're headed. Mark is turning this ship. Jesus is turning the ship. We're starting to go that way. Now, from Bethsaida, if you were to have a map right here, I'd like to just kind of draw it out for you. Bethsaida would be here. Moving up north would be where we're at today, Caesarea Philippi. Now, Jerusalem is south. So, either I have to uh, apologize to you that I was wrong last week, or I have to explain how movement north is actually towards Jerusalem. And I'm never wrong. So, let me explain. 
That is not true. For everyone who listens to this podcast, that's not true. What is happening here is something bigger. Let's look at the wording that is, is happening here. He says along the way. He talks about this as though something is happening. Kind of a trip, a journey, if you will. First, let's think about that. If he is doing this and they're along the way, they're trying to get somewhere. First of all, they have left where? They have left the region of Galilee, where we looked at the last week we talked about it, and Stacy's continued to go over it. His first part of his ministry is all within Galilee, his hometown with these people. He is now moving away from this region, and now he is starting to go on the way. The disciples are along the way with him. Things are happening on the way to, and we've already given it up, we're going to Jerusalem. So he's starting this trip away and around. This is part of the total journey. And if you continue to read, you'll see that this is, this is part of the bigger sense. He's going to use these, these words on the way or along the way a couple different places. Um, we're going to see that he uses it in Mark 9, 33 through 34. He's going to use it in 10, chapter 10, verse 17, verse 32, verse 46, and verse 52. Now, you can go there and look at that. It's, it's kind of amazing. All these things are happening along the way or on the way or beside the roadside or something like this. Because what Mark is doing is taking us down this path, and he's teaching him along the way. Now, we've kinda, we kind of adopt this language, don't we? Like, we want to do along the way discipleship, right? We, we talk about that, and what we mean by that a lot of times is like in the everyday, like taking guys alongside and, you know, having them over for dinner and, doing work or, you know, teaching a lesson alongside of them. And we kind of talk about the method of discipleship, which is good. I think that's a really good thing. But let's not miss for a minute here. There's something bigger at stake. It's not just like the method. It's actually the motivation and even the destination that he's talking about. On the way. On the way where? To Jerusalem. What's happened in Jerusalem? The death of Jesus Christ. That's what he's teaching. He's teaching within a specific context. So when, when we're talking about this discussion that's going to happen in a minute, it's very important that we understand that this is on the way to do something that's treacherous. Jesus will die and thus pay for our sins forever. But this is, this is, this is not expected. Okay, So it's on the way to that that this discussion is going to come out. So along the way this is happening, uh, we see in the coming weeks this will add a great deal really of sobriety for the disciples. This becomes very serious. It's not just, you know, man, another feeding of the 5,000, another one of these things, another trick, the cool thing that opened these people's eyes. He's doing some very incredible things up until this point, but now he's going to teach about things that no one really wants to hear. We're going to cherry pick a little bit, and you guys already know this. If, if you've read ahead at all, you know what's coming. Jesus is going to start talking about his journey to the cross and that he must suffer and die. And he must be, all these things that are going to happen to him. And he's teaching them this is going to happen. He's predicting it. Saying this is the way of discipleship. This is the way. If you're going to follow me, this is going to happen. So he kind of changed gears. He's doing it this way. The discussion then. So we talked about the direction. Going to the discussion. So what, let's, look about, let's look at Jesus' questions and then the disciples' answers to these questions. Jesus asks two different questions but two different versions of the same question, actually. He starts it off by saying, who do people say that I am? Now, at, at the front, we should think, you know, this is an introductory question, all right, as a teacher. He's introducing something. 
because what he really wants to get to is his next question. But even at that, it's weird. It's a little odd. It's a, not a regular question like a teacher or even like a miracle worker would ask. They would never ask about their identity. You would, you would, you would predict something more along the lines of, what is it that people say about that I am doing? What do people say I'm doing? Do they think I'm tricking people, like I'm a magician? Or do they think I am working by the power of Satan? Like, what do they think I'm doing? The other question that you would expect in this kind of a scenario would be that, what are people saying about me? You know, am I a nice guy? Am I full of myself? Um, you, know, you know, am I respected? What do people say about me? Tell, tell me about the thoughts. But Jesus gets right to the point. Because it is what they really are all thinking about anyway at this time, right? Remember chapter 4? What happens after, after this gigantic storm almost crushes them and Jesus calms the storm? Do you remember what they say? Let me read it for you. 4 verse 41. When the disciples ask this, Who then is this that even the wind and the seas would obey him? He is unlike any other man. He doesn't fit the categories. So instead of asking about him, yeah, sure, people are asking about him, but they're asking, who is this guy? He's different than anyone we've seen before. Who is he? And the disciples are certainly asking him. Until this time, no person in Mark's gospel has said anything about this. The only people that know this or would say anything are who? Do you remember? Anybody remember this? The, the demons, the demons call him out, right? And, in, and if, if you go back to the beginning, the title of this is Jesus Christ, Mark's gospel, Jesus Christ. He, he identifies at the beginning. We talked a little bit about that last week. But as far as the drama, when we're in this story, up to this point, no human being has said, this is the Christ or this is Jesus or, or have, have talked about anything like that. If anything, they've talked about that, they've, they've, they've called him one word, teacher. That's it, a rabbi. We've heard that talked about before as well. So he asks now, who, who do people say that I am? So they tell him, they respond. What is the popular thought on the identity of Jesus during the day? By the way, we should know this. Uh, turn your Bible if you have it. Go back a little bit. Mark 6. Remember this story? Herod. Let me read these verses for you. Mark 6, 14 and 15. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. We've heard some of these things already. And it may even be that Jesus knows this. Still, he's bringing this up to them and saying, who do people say that I am? And they respond with these exact three things. They say, maybe it's John the Baptist. Others say that it's Elijah. And others say that it's, you know, one of the prophets of old. Who are these three figures that they, they're coming up with? Now, John the Baptist, we know already. The one that made straight the way of the Lord. Coming back to do this work again, kind of to maybe, maybe it's either him reincarnated or maybe it's his, like, characteristics and personality fleshing themselves out in somebody else? Or maybe it's Elijah. Now, who is Elijah to these people? This is important. Stacy's talked about this several times. Elijah is one of the only ones in recorded biblical history who doesn't actually die. He's taken. Remember that? 
He's taken. So he doesn't die like the rest of us. And we know from Malachi that he will come back again. That one day that that will, that, that will happen. The Jews fully expect to see him back as the forerunner of the great and terrible day of the Lord. That's Malachi 3 and 4. Maybe that was it. Maybe Jesus was Elijah. Or one of the prophets. Moses, in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 and 18, promised that another prophet like him, as great as him or greater, would come to speak to Israel. So this is a possibility, too. These are three realistic options. And he's giving them to me saying, these... Jesus, these are what people say that you are. We could talk about each of these at length. I could make a whole sermon out of each one of these different things. But let's, let's do the important thing. The important thing is that we understand what's, what's similar about these three people, or these three identifications. First of all, all of these answers recognize that Jesus is from God. That's a great thing. They're all saying that Jesus is from God somehow, this man Jesus. Another thing is that he is, they attribute great human, greatness to Jesus. That he is one of the best, maybe the best teacher that's ever lived, or prophet. But all of these answers fail to recognize Jesus' unique relationship with the Father. All of these answers identify Jesus as just another one of the men that came to help to do what God wanted him to do. He has no ability to do other things. All of these answers leave Jesus, get this, unable to do anything about the human problem. None of them take care of sin. None of these answers that they're giving up. Go back for a minute to the other question. If Jesus already knows that people think this about him, why would he ask it again? What's, what's his, you know, Why? He wants the disciples to hear it. This is a teaching question. He's setting this up. He might know this already, but he's setting this up for a very specific purpose. He wants the disciples to say it out loud, and then he wants, as we just discussed, he wants to, them to see the emptiness of it. It's no different necessarily than any of the other forerunners that came along, that prepared the way. So we're set. Like, you know, he wants them to feel that tension and say that, you know, because then he's going to ask his next question. Go back for a minute. Like I said, probably many of you have heard either at work or maybe family members you've talked to before that hold a similar view to this kind of idea. Jesus is a great teacher, a moral example for all of us that we ought to follow, you know, along with Buddha and with Muhammad and these fill in the blank. He is one of the greatest. Isn't that wonderful? The popular answer to the identity of Jesus falls short of who he truly is, though. Verse 29, but who do you say that I am? The first word, in, in, when you're looking at like the Greek text, the first thing is you. He's like pointing the finger and saying, you. Who do you say I am? It's very important. That's, now we're getting to it. Now he's ready to talk. There's no... There's a time decision for the disciples now. Many have passed judgment along the way, right? They come up with the three ideas that them say, and, you know, let's pick up one of these. It's very easy to pass judgment. I'll tell you, I, when I was in college, I worked on this, um, this grass-cutting crew in the summer. And uh, the, one of the things that we would do is, or I can't incriminate myself here. Maybe I am. Uh, we would be driving along the road, and someone would see a girl down the street. Wow, hey, hey, 
go up to her and like, or something like that. We're like, oh, you do it. Oh, you do it. Okay. And we get up there, you know, and maybe she's riding her bike and she looks over and you're like, you know, uh, and, and look away. That's one of those that you call um, good from far, but far from good. You know, this is, this is someone that they, they would freak out and want to look away. Again, that was not nice. I understand that. That's what happened. Um, it's very easy to pass judgment is my point. We do it all the time. We pass judgment. This is different. This is not just passing judgment, not taking one of the many options on the plate and we can take it or leave it. This is different. This is an active decision that these disciples have to make. They can't be neutral anymore. Jesus' question is different. It carries parentheses. Think about this for a minute. All the other people that have been involved, he's discussing back and forth and he's talking to the crowds, the Pharisees, all those that he is interacting with, even Herod. They have this one thing in common. They have a limited scope of what they know about Jesus, an interaction. That's all they have. The disciples, they're with him nonstop. They've been with him for months now, maybe even a year, seeing his, you know, his, his, his prayer, his life, his walking, his doing this, his doing that. And then even more than that, not just sheer quantity, but also think about the insider perspective that they've got. They've got this insider perspective, remember back to the parables, that he starts to explain to them something bigger, bigger picture. They say, we, we don't get the parables. We don't know what you're talking about. Can you explain them to us? And he does so. He gently leads them along. He talks to the disciple as being the ones who had been given the secret of the kingdom of God. So these guys know. And now it's at the point where Jesus says, it's, it's not enough for you to pass judgment. Who do you say that I am? Jesus wants to know what these guys thinks and think, and more importantly, he's asking them to make a specific decision about this. He's declaring to them this, and this is what we've got to listen to. You guys can't be neutral about me. No more. I've let you slip by this long. You ever been in a conversation where someone asks you direct questions and they're really uncomfortable? <laughs> this is a really uncomfortable situation. He says, the first question Hey, who do people say I am? Tell me, guys. Who do you say that I am? Peter, one of the, the, really the spokesmen of the group, chimes in and he's ready. And I don't know what it was like, but as he says, he's, with great trembling, he says, you are, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. Peter doesn't make a judgment call here. He doesn't, make, he doesn't choose from the three options. Instead, this is, there's a huge difference. He's deciding he's going to make a confession. There's a difference between a, a judgment and a confession. What I mean by that is that you can choose one of these options over here, but a confession requires something of you. There is an amount of faith here that's different from what have You could easily just grab one of the different things that the crowds are offering. Peter is something totally different, and he calls him the Christ, the Messiah. <laughs> this is a confession of faith. I don't think we understand how crazy it is that he says this. How, how much it must have been, like, if, if people were watching the play, if we were watching a play, they would go, <gasps> how can he say that? How could anyone say that a man, this guy right here, normal person, is the Messiah? 
that he is the Christ. Now, demons can say it, but, you know, that, the demons have said it, but no one else has said this, like I said before. I understand that this is not shocking to us, but that's because you and I grew up as knowing the stories in our Bible, especially the stories about Jesus as the ones that were done, the main character was Jesus Christ. You know, as if Jesus was his first name and Christ was his last name. We've talked about this before. Like he had brothers and sisters that were named Andrew Christ and, you know, James Christ and Jacob Christ and Sally Christ. And that he was one of them. He was Jesus Christ. Like, that's not true. I know that if, like, I actually asked you, you wouldn't believe that. But we, we're confusing something. We're confusing his name with his title. His name was Jesus. His title, especially as given to him by the New Testament writers, is the Christ. So when you read Jesus Christ, you're not reading his first and last name. Or his first and second name. We're talking about Jesus, who is the Christ. The Messiah. And that is weighty. There's so much to this. And I, I know that it's very difficult for us. It's going to be hard for us to go back and put ourselves in the place of these Jewish fishermen who tag along to this rabbi and venture a guess that this might be the Christ? <laughs> like, I'm sure the ones surrounding him are like, how do you think that you would be lucky enough to stumble along after hundreds of years of silence from no prophets and everyone is waiting for him how do you think you would stumble along the Christ and that your little band of fishermen and tax collectors and these people would be lucky enough to stumble along the Messiah? And yet Peter says it. So my question, like to Peter and the disciples again, because I think that he's representing disciples. Don't, don't mistake Peter as like being independent of thought here. He's not like rogue as far as the 12 disciples go. He is most likely being the, the, uh, the spokesperson, like I said before. And we know this because Jesus responds to all of them. And we know going forward, when he turns around to rebuke, he looks at the disciples. Peter is bringing a thought that all the disciples are ready to say, but Peter, of course, is a spokesman. He's always outspoken. We're going to see it over and over and again. But he says this. It's very important that we understand how, how a word like this would affect the hearers. And what it would mean. Let me talk about for a minute what the Christ would mean. I don't think we even understand this. The word the Christ or the Messiah or the anointed one is referring back to specifically a kingship idea. Think about Samuel. When Samuel goes to anoint David. Do you remember this story? He goes and he talks to Jesse. He says, I want to bring all your sons out here. I need to anoint the king. One of them is going to be the king. God has told me to come and do this. So they line up. God doesn't speak. No, it's not any of these guys. Do you have anybody else? Ah, David, but he like tends the sheep. Bring him in. They bring him in. God tells him, this is the one. This is the one who I want. And what does Samuel do? He pours oil over and he anoints him as to be the king. Go along in 1 Samuel, we're going to see also David call out to Saul. And, and he's calling him. His title is the anointed one or the Lord's anointed. Remember that? He talks about, like, how, how dare I lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. So this is, like, kind of the, the, the beginning of this idea of the anointed one. Move forward to the exile. Let's jump forward. The, the monarchy of Israel has completely failed. They've been captured. They're away in a different land. And Jeremiah writes to the nation. Let me read to you from Jeremiah, all right? Verse, 20, verse 5 and 6 of tw chapter 23. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. 
And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. Now, no one has seen or heard of many prophets, like a real legit prophet, like writing a book of the Bible for hundreds of years. Fast forward again where we're at now. The idea of Messiah, of the anointed one, has taken on even a stronger political flavor, if you will. Yeah, he was going to be the one that does this and that and this, but they're kind of really hoping that someone would come to free them from the oppression that they're feeling from Caesar, from all those that are in their nations around them. They need someone to liberate them. And I think that this is something that you know, we, we kind of know or we've heard maybe before. But again, try if we can to put yourself in their position and say, why in the world would Peter say this? Why would Peter venture a guess that he was the Christ? Because my, in my eyes, I'm like, there's no way I would choose that. Like, it would be blasphemy to say something like that. The Son of God, the Anointed One, the one who we've talked about for thousands of years. He's clearly, let me give you a few ideas. He's clearly from God. Everyone agrees on that. He's clearly from God. But there's more. He is not like any of the other prophets. His authority is different. Everything that he says and he does, is he has divine attributes of miraculous power. His teaching is different. Who teaches on the kingdom of God like this guy does? He is teaching about the kingdom of God and what it will be like and how it is coming, how it will grow and strengthen. And he is building a case for that the kingdom of God is near. Lastly, I think an important thing for us to recognize that Peter looks at is that uh, Jesus is against, in, in one way, he's against what Herod is doing. So there's lots of different things that kind of, okay, after he knows Jesus, after this amount of time, he's seen him do all these things, he says, maybe there is something to this. Maybe he is the Christ. It's not a loosey-goosey type of decision. He's like, ah, maybe he could be John. Maybe this. I hope we get that, that he threw out the answer not throwing it out, but deliberately, slowly said, you're the Messiah. If this is true, if it's true, that would mean that salvation has come. If it is true, it means that deliverance has come. If it, this is true, then all the things that the Jews were expecting and longing for and wanted were here. This is huge. Jesus answers Peter, though. If you're following along your notes, this is the third. This is the devastating response. But the response to Jesus is, Jesus' response to the questions that answer the disciples. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And now, try to find out, did they get it right? If you know, if you're a reader first time, Mark 1.1, 1, 1, we know that this is about Jesus, who is the Christ. We know it from the title of this, right? But to the disciples, they're not sure. Because Jesus says, don't say anything to anyone about me. So they're looking around to each other like, so he is? Or what in the world was that? Like they, they don't understand the response either. But he says, be quiet. Why in the world would Jesus say this? If he gets it right, which we as readers know that he got it right, why would he say, be quiet, don't tell anyone about this? 
This is the question that we really have to answer today. If, Jesus, if, if Peter gets it right, and he is the Christ, and all these things come with it, why would Jesus say then, be silent, do not tell anyone about this. Don't tell anyone about me. Remember, <laughs> it must have been hard for the disciples. This is where we start drawing some evidence from, some, from going forward into Mark. It must have been hard for the disciples. They don't get to read ahead in Mark's story. Like, they don't know, but we do. We get to read ahead a little bit, so I'm going to pull a little bit in here. Remember that it was crazy that Peter would even suggest such a title for the rabbi of Jesus or the Christ. If this is truly the Messiah, the one that we have waited for, Jesus is stepping into some very big shoes. But maybe they're the wrong shoes. Maybe Peter has gotten the right title, but the wrong idea. Maybe he's saying, you are the Christ. And you got to remember, with that word, there's all this background and baggage. When he says that, though, Jesus is not saying that. Maybe, maybe, he, maybe Peter is wrong in what he means behind the word. When people think of the Messiah, they think of military power and rule and the end of time, national peace and all kinds of stuff that is totally distracting from what Jesus is trying to come to do, to fulfill his role as savior of the world. They're thinking about their present circumstances. He is thinking about eternity. They're thinking about their, their walk down the street and how they have to interact as Jews. He's thinking about how people of all time need to know and love and be forgiven by a savior. And the only way that can happen is through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's his definition. And we're going to learn this as we go through. Again, next week we'll start to fill this out a lot better because Jesus is going to start teaching this and explaining to them what he means by the Messiah, what he means his job is to do. You got the title right, Peter, but let me explain to you my mission. Because in a popular understanding of the Messiah, we're not talking about the suffering servant that we find in Isaiah. They're not thinking about that. They're thinking about the king who will rule and break down all these political pieces and that will... Be, bring all this peace and bring all these special things to the Jews specifically. Maybe Jesus is saying, don't say anything about that because it will be completely distracting from what he has still to do. It's only chapter 8. You got, we got a long way to go, Peter. Don't bring all your baggage with that term into this discussion. So we're here. What can we take from this? We're getting somewhere. It is... We're going to hear Jesus call us out, us, in these next couple verses. We're, you're, you and I are going to be convicted about how and what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple. But for today, after going through this, remember back we talked about the question, or we, I said maybe you have relatives, or maybe someone you know, or maybe someone I, I, maybe that you brought along with you today that, 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 that says, you know, Jesus is a good guy. He's a good moral teacher, a great example you know, we ought to follow his example. And same with, you know, and he's, he's like many of the great teachers that have ever walked the earth. Maybe that's not you or us this morning. Maybe it's easier for us to say, realistically, like something more along the lines like, yeah, Jesus, I'll say that he's the son of God. I'll even go to church. I'll even, you know, do these different things that are, you know, that are right and, you know, I'll be a Christian. 
But that doesn't mean a, like my whole entire life needs to center around him. I mean, I'm not, I'm not really that into Jesus. I believe that, and you know, that's enough, right? No. No, it's not enough. Even the demons know that he's Jesus, that he's the Christ, and they tremble. They are not saved. They do not find great peace in who he is. They are not fulfilled. They will burn. This Jesus demands our life. I'm just going to pick from one verse, verse 34. If we go forward, Jesus is going to say this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's not just okay to say that he is this person or, you know, whatever. And we're glad and we come and we do this Jesus thing. He demands our life. He is not okay with you just coming on Sunday morning. Like the crowds and like Peter, we must make a decision about who he is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your word that teaches us. And Lord, we want to respond in a way that brings you honor and glory. Pray that we would be overwhelmed by the sense of, of decision that we have to make. I pray that you would help us today to make a decision. And we, we know that these things cannot be done in our own our own on our own merit, our own strength, we need you. We cry out to you and call out in our weakness and say, help my unbelief, God. Help me believe and trust that you are who you say you are. And may you change my life. And may you help me to follow you and be your disciple. I know this is not an easy decision, Lord, for my brothers and friends here in front of me and their family members and all that this means, Lord. I know that it's not easy in our weakness and suffering and our bad choices, Lord, we come to you and cry out and ask you to help us, that we would believe. May we take this seriously, Lord. May we be sober. And may we recognize that you are the Christ. You are the king. You are the one that will make all things right. And though our understanding is cloudy, and as we hear Peter say these things, and Jesus asks the questions, we kind of, Get that picture. Do you see anything? And the blind man says, yeah, but it's not clear. Like trees walking. We're starting to see that in disciples. And we see in our lives, as you bring us along, Lord, we ask that you would make things clear. And that along the way, we would trust you and hold your hand and be carried by you. Teach us, Lord, in Jesus' name.